This week on Death of the Reader, did Knox's chapter save the day, or did he phone it in? Dr. Malcolm Ryan is in to talk detectives and game design, and how many Rogers can the story contain? You're on Death of the Reader. You're listening to 2SER 107.3. We are Flex and Herds bringing you Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour. Shout out to the Meter family for their wonderful little theme song they cooked up for us there. Today, Herds, mm. we're continuing the Floating Admiral. We're dealing with chapters 5 to 8. So far in the story, the Admiral, Lord Penniston, has found himself bludgeoned to death in the bottom of a boat. Wait, bludgeoned? Wasn't he stabbed? Well, he was clearly, you know, squashed under all of this sheer reasoning we've been given by the Detection Club, our authors. You know what? I I believe that. (laughs) That is a straight-up fact. Oh, my goodness. I feel similarly. This story is excellent if you approach it as the game it is. It is a fun time, but I was definitely not prepared going into this. This is like... It's ridiculous. (laughs) I I told you last week we'd thrown you a curveball. Yeah. Yeah, you threw me about 18 curveballs. They're all, each of them slightly differently curved. Yeah, that sounds about right. Now, I think that the the main message we can take away from this and mm-hmm. last week is that the more authors we have, the more confusing it gets. Here's the deal. I'm enjoying reading the novel. However, however, there is no real story it is just focused on all of the authors coming in one after the other. It's like it's like a parade. It's like clouds coming out of a clown car. You know, you see one clown, you come out, you think that's pretty funny. You see like two or three come out after them, you're like, well, that's crazy. Look at all those clowns in that clown car. But then there's about 10 of them coming out of this tiny car and you're like, man, that's insane. What is happening? I'm not comfortable. I need to take a breather. I need to take a vacation. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's definitely a little ridiculous, but admittedly, they did tell you what it was going it to be in the introduction. It is impeccable at following through on its own premise in that it is 12 people, one after the other, shouting at you what they think the, the mystery is or what the, the answer is. A bit of both, really. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've I've been reading through. You're the one who's read it all, and I haven't read anything, and I'm having a great time, but I am, I am just perplexed. Um, because clearly there are all these different answers that are being put towards me and I don't know which one to pick. And some of these mysteries, I'm not even sure if they mean anything. Uh, one that jumped out at me was the house key puzzle, which I don't even know what's happening there. The Admiral has a key to his house, but he keeps the door latched or unlatched, and and he, but he has a key, so that doesn't really matter. Well, yeah, the whole thing is, is that the key was found in the bottom of the boat where his body yes. was found, and it's like, so he had a key to his so, house? Yeah, he had a key to the house that he lives in? Like, where is the mystery there? You know, oh, it was locked when he left, or it wasn't locked, but, like, he left with the key in his, in his person. Like, I don't understand what the problem is there. There's a lot of weird mysteries, and there are some that are... Because that's like that's the the setup you would think to a locked room mystery, which is quite an iconic sort of you know well, puzzle. I I think that the key to the French door, as it's described, is that a pun? Is it, you going you going you going to make a pun out of this? No, no. I mean, like the the physical key oh, okay, in the story. Good. Okay, good. Was meant to be a 
you know, a thread that was thrown for the other writers in the yeah. story. But so far, no one has picked up on it. No one's and they it. all keep bringing it up and ridiculing it for how pointless it is. Yeah. It's and on the strange. one hand, on the one hand, that's kind of amazing. Yeah. On the other hand, it's like, oh, just leave it alone already. Yeah, it's very strange. I will say shout out to our boy Knox. Um, once again, bringing up uh, some very strangely absurd writing as in the three taps, which we've discussed previously. Um, he really brings up or rather brings down, I suppose, the pacing of the of the story, which I really appreciate because as I say, I, I said this last time we had a chat about this, every single author is trying to cram as much reasoning, as much mystery as they can into the story. Whereas Knox, he says, hey, I'm going to lay out 39 things that I think you should think about. And that's it. That's all the chapter is. It ends with a lovely little nightmare of Mrs. Davies being whacked to death with a rolled up newspaper. But other than that, nothing of import happens. It's just laying out some thoughts and some theories, which I really appreciate. I, I think the first thing for me was when I read through Knox's chapter initially, I thought to myself, oh, what a lazy sod. <laughs> he didn't even try. Um, but going through in a reread, I think that there was a brilliant self-awareness with which he delivered the chapter. Mm. I particularly enjoyed the opening section where he was basically bemoaning how boring Rudge is. Yep. He doesn't really have a character. Yeah, but I think as we got on to later in Knox's chapter, uh, and, and especially going over it the second time, there was a really fantastic self-awareness, as I said, to the way yep. he delivered it. I really enjoyed in particular when he quoted his own Chinaman <laughs> theory from the uh, from his rule set that we discussed when, you know, going over the three taps, which you can find on the podcast. Yeah. Now. The thing is, Herds, mm. having read over Knox's chapter, mm -hmm. do you think that this story will follow? Will follow the, the rules of Knox? Yes. I, f I feel like the one that the rule that sticks out to me as the most likely to be broken is that... It is important that the actual perpetrator is introduced the early way that in I, the book. I think that they all try to get around that is that he was mentioned in the prologue. I still maintain... Out of those, the two captains, one of them is Penniston, the other one is some other character. I haven't figured out who. Uh -huh. I think they're the murderer. But, like, I think that by that rule in particular, I don't think that um, it's very easy to hold up, especially with all of this back and forth, all this jumping around of who's the killer, who's not. I read a letter from Knox, which okay. was about the writing of mysteries in a group. Okay, uh, cool. And I don't know whether it was before or after this story. It may have even been one of the inspirations for this story, mm. um, but it, it was not. It was not clearly dated. Uh -huh. But basically, he was saying that more often than not, in the murder mysteries of his colleagues, the first person mentioned in the entire story, <laughs> other than the the person who died, was the culprit. I mean, that's the easiest way to write a mystery. Yeah. Because then no one can complain. They can't say, oh, well, you didn't spend enough time looking at them. Like, well, they were the first thing in the books. So obviously, you should be focusing your attention on them. Um, which I can't think of the top of my head who was the first person mentioned. But the first significant person in chapter one is certainly where, which obviously is why I was drawn him. Um, I still think there's a case to be made for where, but we'll, we'll get into that later. Yeah, I've spent so much of this story referring not to the actual chapters, but more to the preface by Dorothy L. Sayers, where she describes how the story came to be. Right. Because I think that looking at the story under that microscope is perhaps the most fascinating way to analyze it. Sure. Um, particularly when we get to the fact that, you know, this was a group of friends who liked to sit down for dinner parties. Yeah. Right? I think that by having all these authors come together and really put their best foot forward and everyone's trying to 
you know, like step on each other's toes in a sense. Um, everyone's trying to work forward. I could imagine a, a scenario where uh, Knox came across this story, read the first seven chapters, said, there's no way this abides by my rules and said, I'm out, I'm done. Like I, I give up on this. This is not going to work. But he went full ham, um, providing us with 39 reasons why we should continue to try to puzzle it out. And that's certainly how I read his chapter. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I, I really appreciate that. I appreciate that he stuck it through um, and that it was continuing to be written. So even though I'm sitting here having only half a mind about what's going on, still, I suppose, pushing for Nettie Ware as the killer, um, I still feel like there's there's plenty of room to throw more crazy stuff in and for the authors to have a really fun time. And that's really what matters in this story. I think that so far in the story, they have definitely failed at the goal that they set themselves of not having each author introduce a new puzzle needlessly mm. for the reason of complicating there's, things. There's a new puzzle in every chapter except yeah. for Knox's, I'm sure. And Knox, again, carrying the team on his back, uh, he lays down that support ground for the rest of the novel. It's kind of like a reset button, which I think is really cool. Yeah, that is kind of why I chose to stop here, yep. uh, because I think that it's a valuable place to sit and reflect before we get into the yep. mess that is the following four chapters. What do you mean it's going to get more messy? <laughs> to say to say nothing of the content, oh. the last four chapters is as long as the first eight. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up later on the show, Herds is going to lay down his theory as to why Nettie Ware is the one true only possible culprit. I got it, guys. Don't you, don't you worry about me. I got this. And also, we'll have to reason out what we think Agatha Christie's solution is. Oh, boy. But before we get there, we have Dr. Malcolm Ryan from Macquarie University here to talk a bit about game design and how it affects the world of detective fiction. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Hey, you're listening to Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour on 2SCR 107.3. We're here with Dr. Malcolm Ryan, lecturing game design development and indie game developer from Macquarie University. How are you doing today? Good, thanks. That's excellent. It's a pleasure to have you here. So I've, I've brought you on uh, as, a, as a special guest to kind of talk about the history of interactivity and fiction because we, you know, we're doing this murder mystery show mm -hmm. um, and we love to talk about how uh, murder mystery is, is the old video game. It's, uh, it's a pastime that people used to sit around and talk about, you know, this is who the murder is, this is who we think it is. Um, it's a sort of interactive fiction that people can get involved in. And uh, we're particularly interested in how uh, detective fiction can be, can be seen as an interactive medium. So I guess I wanted to ask if you can tell us about some, some earlier examples of interactive fiction, maybe some old video games or anything else you know about that. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, interactive yeah. fiction really, some of the earliest uh, video games, yeah. before you even call them video games, I guess, uh, were in, were what's now called interactive fiction um, yeah. because graphics was terrible back sure, then. Yeah. I remember the first game I ever played was called Pyramid 2000 mm. and it was on my old Tandy TRS-80 <laughs> and it was a purely text adventure about yeah. about exploring a pyramid and rescuing treasures yeah. from the pyramid. And why do you think there's that drive there to, to engage with these interactive, you know, stories and, and experiences? I mean, well, I mean, for me, ultimately the answer is because we can, right? Of um, we make art because we can, and this is another opportunity to do something interesting. No, for sure. Um, what's engaging about it? I mean, we always like 
the idea of getting caught up in the story in some yeah. sense and being able to be part of the story rather than just just witness it that and I think that's what games can can offer us in one way or another mm. um, there are a whole bunch of tricky design problems in making that work it doesn't just automatically transfer you can turn a story into a game yeah um, but yeah it's a uh, I think that's really what drives it we were always um, always like stories and always wanted to get that dream of getting caught up in the action in whatever way it is. You don't wonder if there's a little bit of wish fulfillment in following on the, the story of the detective solving the crime, you know, saving the day. Maybe there's, there's something to that. Yeah, you want to, I mean, the game, a game gives you, I mean, traditionally a detective story, you're doing that, You're you're even though you are not the detective, you are mm. still being the detective in some sense Absolutely. along the way. And the game now gives you the opportunity to actually like to fulfill that fantasy to yourself, be the detective, make yeah. the make the incredible, the clever observations, the, the leaps of deduction yeah. that, that can solve the mystery. The eureka moments, of course, yeah. I, I guess I wanted to ask, um, you, I, I hope, have played a, a few video games. Um, a few, yeah. Yeah, what um, sort of reflections of the detective fiction's approach um, of interactivity can be seen in more modern interactive media? For me, it comes down to thinking about... Um, if you want to fulfil the fantasy of the player being the detective, then then I think you've got to think about what are the main things the detective does and how do you make the player feel like they're doing those things. Mm. So I was thinking about this when you invited me. I was thinking mm-hmm. if I was going to design a detective game, what would be my, my design goals? Yeah. The approach that I usually take to designing a game is sort of work out broadly speaking, what kind of experience that I want to create and then work out how I can build mechanical things into the game that, that enable me to have that experience and to convey that experience to another player. Yeah. And so I think the experience of being a detective is like the... It's it's a cer- exercising a certain set of skills, right? Mm-hmm. It's the skills of observation, yeah. of deduction, maybe of interrogation. Yeah, uh, of maybe I could, you know, depending on the kind of detective that I'm going to be, maybe I'm a Sherlock Holmes kind of detective who just, you know, looks at the scene and picks out the key details that, that are really mm-hmm. important. Or maybe I can make various, you know, clever leaps of deduction from one thing to the next. Yeah. Or maybe I'm the kind of detective who, you know, grabs you by the shirt collar and, and, and uh, you know, get beats the truth out of you in some fashion. Um, You've got to think about what sort of skills is the player going to employ and then how do we test those skills within the game. Do you think that there are are more strengths or weaknesses to to a game or to to an interactive medium that um, integrates its puzzles fictionally? Um, As an example, you might have played a a game like Transistor, which is, uh, it's about a a computer program trying to survive a system breakdown by defeating bugs in in turn-based combat mechanics. It's all very integrated with the fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, You would say the fiction is even a a sort of a background thing in in that sort of game. But in a game like The Witness um, is a a very popular, uh, it's a puzzle game, but the line based puzzles that we, we play through and that we engage with, they really don't have anything to do with the plot in that game. You're just, it's just a, a it's a pastime. It's something to, to pique the brain, I suppose. What do you think about that? Yeah, so um, so when we, when we talk about design, we talk about the idea of, yeah, your game has some fantasy attached to it. You are pretending something and that pretending might have some story attached to it. It might just be, so I mean, the pretense in, in The Witness is fairly, Mm. Uh, is just you are wandering around on some mysterious sure. island where there are a bunch of puzzles. And yep. Yep. it isn't trying to play it isn't trying to give you a plot. It isn't trying to give you a reason why these puzzles yeah. exist or anything. It's just it's a it's an interesting place in order to, to set the puzzles. And I mean it's very well integrated with I mean the way those puzzles work with the environment is remarkable, but it's not trying to tell a story. Yeah. 
on the other hand, other games, yeah, might have more of a narrative goal and it might be trying to say you are, mm. you're not just some random person. I mean, you, you don't, in The Witness, you are not anybody. You are just the player, right? Yeah. But in other games, you might be somebody who is trying to achieve something yeah. in some narrative. And then, then you have to think, if we're designing those kinds of games, you have to think then how do we fit these things more uh, seamlessly into that narrative? Because... Mm. Um, so we talk about, um, in design, talk about the idea that a game has two narratives. Mm. It has the, um, the sort of external narrative, which is the narrative that's written onto the game, where, it, where the game tells you this is a game about whatever it is about. So Mario Kart says, you know, mm. everything, everything, the art, the, the, the everything about that game says this is a game about racing cars, right? Mm. Um, but then there's also the internal narrative about... Um, about that comes from the mechanics of the game, comes from what you're doing in the game as the player. And Mario Kart does that well because the internal mechanics of that game are also about racing cars and the kinds of drama that comes out of the, the play is matches the kind of drama that you would have from a good car racing game. Mm. Whereas other games, the kind of narrative that comes out of the play is quite distinct or, di or you know, different from the narrative that's imposed from on high. Yeah. I mean, the classic example for me of that is um, any uh, RPG, computer yeah. RPG game, which tells you, oh, this mission is really urgent. Yeah. If you don't save this person soon, they'll die. Yeah. But actually the mechanics say, yeah, but you can go off and do yeah. any number of side quests before yeah, you yeah, address yeah. that. And, and that person will still be on the edge of death no matter when you arrive yeah. at wherever they are. Do you think that... Um stories like that with that, that distance there, do you think that they could be improved by taking a look at, at older approaches or um, detective fiction or anything like that? Um, it's it's a big problem. I mean, partly I've found that games have just suffered from bad writing. I mean, games have, have, have mm. traditionally neglected their writing. Uh, and even the best, the games that are recognised as being the best written games pale in comparison to the best written novels, right? They, they are yeah. adequate at best. And um, so a lot of the games we talk about, this game has amazing writing. I mean, really, if we compared this to any any novel, it would be a fairly cheap novel. Yeah, it wouldn't sure. be a classic by any means. Mm. Um, so partly the problem, I think, could be addressed by just paying better attention to writing. And, sure. um, and especially in the detective genre, um, there's an essay by Chesterton, where, yeah. who was one of the early detective fiction where, writers. Yeah, he's an excellent... Yeah. Uh, he's known for his, um, his juxtaposing descriptions and his, um, his paradoxes in his writing. Apparently, yeah. that's what he's known for. Yeah, and yeah, absolutely. yeah, tell me. But yeah, there's an essay he wrote where he talked about how um, detective fiction is one of the most prescriptive forms in that it has, uh, there are distinct patterns for how a detective uh, novel works and there are, it's mm -hmm. basically a design pattern. It tells you here's how to design a good detective novel. You do follow these these steps. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, he very much believed that, I mean, that his writing was formulaic yep. in that sense um, because there was a, a recipe for a good, good detective novel. Yes, yes. And from... Um, from a game design point of view, that's that's really interesting for us as game designers because we can then see that same design pattern that he's using and we can say, how can this design pattern be taken from literature into games? The kinds of storytelling that we'll talk about in, in game design is very um, still very much based on, for example, the, um, the, the Joseph Campbell um, mm. hero... Um, 
Hero with a Thousand Faces. The, I see. Is very popular in games because it's not this nice design formula for telling a story. Yeah. But somehow, sometimes that gets caught up as the only formula for telling a story. Yeah. Every story has the, every game story has this heroic narrative, and even then, it's done badly. Mm. Um, and so I think. There are a lot of different genres that have a lot of different forms and and what what I would call design patterns for how they work and how uh, and we could think about how these different genres of writing work and bring some of that knowledge into how we're designing games that mm. tell different kinds of stories, yeah. games that tell detective stories, games that tell romances or mm. whatever it might be. Yeah, I was going to say it's all about it's all about breaking the breaking the rules, breaking the form. Um, but in a way that is intelligent, not just to break the rules. Absolutely. Mm. I am a firm believer in learn the rules and then break them creatively. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that might be all the time that we have for today. Um, you've been listening to 2SCR 107.3, Death of Rita. I've been Herds, and that was uh, Dr. Malcolm Ryan. Ready for Nettie? Because I'm ready for Nettie and Herds, I hear you are as well. I am the most ready, Nettie. I'm ready for <laughs> y- Yeti. Hey! Woo, we made it. <laughs> You're on 2SER 107.3. This is Death of the Reader. We are discussing The Floating Admiral, Woo. chapters 5 to 8 by the Detection Club. Now, this is the part where Herds comes to me and says, Flex, I have a solution for everything in the book. I have solved it with such grandiosity that I will earn your credited points when we reach the third part. That's what's happening today, clearly, because I know exactly what's happening and you haven't given me the most complicated puzzle that has ever existed. It's garbage. uh, Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Now, yeah. Last week, Herds was was big on the Nettyware train. Mm. He was he was clearly the sailor mentioned in the prologue. The prologue having been written after the rest of the story. Yes. Now, I don't think I can disagree on that. I think that the connection between the introduction Nettyware and the Admiral is an admirable one to make. I, I don't even know what to make of that. Are you, are you saying that I'm right? Is that what's happening here? I'm saying that given the difficulty of the puzzle, making such an obvious face value connection as though it was put there on purpose to mislead you or something. No. You're a miracle worker, Ben. I will say I think that Nettyware is still a valid candidate for the murderousy. Um, however, I also think that um, Holland has a pretty good case for him. And this Wilfred fellow who we haven't met and we know next to nothing about. I'd like to revise slightly. I think that he might actually be the murderer. Um, Who? Wilfred, maybe. He's I don't know. barely been in the story. I know, but that's what makes him so suspicious. He's barely even there. I'm just saying, maybe, maybe he, uh, maybe he's the guy who shows up at uh, Mrs. Davis's place and pretends to be the admiral. Maybe he's allowed to do that because he used to be a captain just like uh, the admiral did, and so he was able to impersonate him. In the same way, those two boats looked exactly the same except for their colors they were flying. I see. Now, the one thing that I do then have to question is (laughs) between Nettie and Sir Wilfred, the two sailors we supposedly have in the story, and Holland, who supposedly gets his materials from China... Like, what's your motive here, Ben? 
You haven't. You've just picked people. You've not given anyone alibis. I know. I know. You're I basically you throwing no, darts at a blank dartboard. Hold on. I don't have to give anybody alibis. That's their job to give me alibis, and my job to be like, no, that's not true. I disagree. I said so. Why would I give them alibis and tell you why they weren't at the scene of the crime? No, you need to work out whose alibi is correct, whose no, is contradictory, especially when we get to things like the train puzzle, which, as we have oh had pointed out to us later in the story, the train puzzle is clearly misleading to try throw an al- a fake alibi in there, right? Yes. Now, this is a story clearly written by multiple authors trying to have a fun dinner party puzzle with each other, but does that not mean that they'd be trying to make a difficult puzzle by making overlapping alibis and contradictory alibis such as one certain train. I mean, that's definitely the plan. I'm, I'm generally not good with time puzzles in particular. But yeah, the, the train puzzle is definitely something that Mrs. Davis tries to work out or, or provide some clues for. But even then, we don't even know if it's the Admiral who she's talking to when, when he, they said that they had to go catch the train anyway. So, you know, <laughs> it's a bit silly. In answer to your question about the motive, I think that the... The two most obvious motives that we have in the story. Uh, one, if we put on the sailor thing, there was some slight that happened back in the day. There's some lost honor going on in the military. You know, the story in the prologue about how there's this one officer, or this one captain who's really all over the place. He's getting drunk. He's in the opium dens and he's getting court-martialed. And then the other one who is, you know, contradictory codes and morals, but he would never, you know, stray from someone who was in trouble. There's an obvious conflict there that has happened. Um, Whether that's the only motivator going on here, I'm not sure. Um, The other motivator, obviously, is money. We spent a lot of time through chapters five through eight talking about how, you know, the Admiral had this money and there's this will that means that his niece will get all his money when he he dies and, like, that he, he doesn't want her being married to Holland, but maybe he does because there's a letter that shows up later, which is, you know, fantastically convoluted. Uh, but I don't think that Holland is the murderer uh, because the way that he interacts with uh, with Raj in particular, we are told that he seems like he doesn't know what he's saying. It seems like he's coming up with information. He's jumping back from alibis. Like the behavior that he's exhibiting doesn't make sense for a criminal. Um, it seems more likely that he's trying to cover for someone else. Um, although it's possible that he, you know, he did the deed in place of Elmore, in place of Wilfred, in place of someone else. Um, and so that's him trying to, you know, take all the blame onto himself. We've clearly had him tied up in China. He's clearly tied up with Elmer Fitzgerald. We've also heard that the Admiral and his niece are more like husband and wife. So could we not then argue that Holland just is the Admiral? It's funny you should say that. I, I don't <laughs> have quite that theory, but I do have some ideas, something that's been brought up a couple of times with mainly Chapter 5 and and 4. Um we have mentions of both the Admiral coming to, to see Holland and being all, yo, what up on the Admiral? But it might not have been the Admiral. Um, and also with the two boats, which are side by side and they look very similar, if not the same. Mm-hmm. That theme of impersonation is also something that Knox brings up. I definitely think there's some impersonation somewhere in the story or someone who is actually someone else. My kind of theory that I've been tossing around in my head is that maybe Holland is uh, Walter, which is Elmer's like long lost brother. Surely Peniston would have recognized his own nephew. Maybe he did. Maybe that's why he was so like against the marriage. He was like, this ain't right. There's a marriage of convenience to say nothing else. I ain't happy with it. But then he could have just redrafted the will, could he not? 
you know, if he had a problem with Holland, it seems like Holland's relationship with Elmer has gone on for most of the month that mm. they've been in town. Maybe this was something that Pennison was like not sure on. You know, he was like, "This isn't. This is a bit weird," but. It sorts out the problem of getting Walter back into the family. Maybe his eyesight isn't good. <laughs> Maybe that's a twist. I don't know. And that's why he dropped it's, the key, of course. There you go. That's it. It's something that I've been tossing around my head because I definitely think with all these mentions of impersonations and, and characters not being, you know, characters looking the same, I think there has to be something. And I'm not saying that there are actually 18 different Rudges that all exist in this story and that the plot twist at the end it's like a cloning facility and that every single Rudge is, is equal and they fight to the death on an island. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, but if it did, that'd be pretty crazy. Are you <laughs> telling me that Hong Kong is just the Hunger Games Rudge edition? Yes. Okay. That's exactly what I'm saying. Oh, so God. strap in. Get ready for Katniss Everdeen to play 18 different Rudges. She's going to whack on a beard. It's going to be great. Point is, there is room for a theory in which Holland is actually long lost brother Walter. And that, that is the hill that I will die on, apparently. <laughs> That's where we're going? That's, you're locking that in? I'm not sure. This is the problem. So this wait, is, who's killed too who? too many. Elmer, clearly. So Elmer has killed the Admiral. Yes. And Holland is Walter. Yes. They killed him to preserve their secret. And of course, his trading business is thus, you know, the thing that, he, that Walter was in trouble for with the law. Yes. Right. Maybe maybe he was involved in those opium dens dens back and in And that's what the introduction. Kong. Okay. That cool. makes sense. I'm on to board. Me. I'm on board. And then uh Penison is like, yo, I, I trust you enough because you're my nephew, so I'm not gonna bring my loaded gun with me. However, we're gonna have a chat about this marriage thing and how weird it is. Right. And then Holland is like, put that in writing, and then he does. And then either Elmer or Holland stabs him with the steak knife in the boat. But what about Nettie Ware? <laughs> Nettyware. Nettyware is just a stand-up guy. He found a corpse and he reported it like a good citizen, like a good Christian. All right. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for joining us on Death of the Reader. That's Herds' prevailing theory. As but we, it's actually Nettie. As we go into... Lock it in, Nettie. As we go into our final week. Will he be right? Will he be wrong? Maybe. Or will Mrs. Davis be behind it all, all along? With the newspaper. Oh, it was so obvious. Next week on Death of the Reader, we'll be covering from chapters 9 till the end of The Floating Admiral. And yes, that does mean the appendices as well. Good luck. If you're reading along, be sure to read those. They are a monster. We'll see you next week. <laughs>